Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicate. I am your host, Armand Haddad. This season, we're exploring the cinematic adaptations of beloved stories. Today, we are exploring the 1978 film by Francis Ford Coppola, Apocalypse Now. But before we take a riverboat down the Vietnam jungle in search of Charlie, I am joined by a special guest, Cam Lewis. Currently, he hangs his hat at Cornerstone University as a film professor. Outside of the classroom, Cam is a talented filmmaker and screenwriter, responsible for a number of short films, and most recently, a feature film, When Icarus Fell which is available to stream now on Amazon Prime. Cam Lewis, welcome to the show. Hey, Armand. Thank you for having me on. Super excited to talk about this great movie tonight. Yes, yes. I'm so excited, too. So before we jump into today's discussion on Apocalypse Now, let's first talk about your feature film, When Icarus Fell. Could you tell our audience what your film is all about? Yeah, so this is a multi-narrative film. There's five main characters, but it follows the storyline of a politician trying to get ahead in his career. So he's trying to get this windmill turbine project off the ground. And then it follows the interweaving tales of the construction manager of that project, of the intern to the politician, and to the farmer and her son who owns the land that they're trying to build this turbine farm on. So it's ultimately a story about ambition, as the title kind of indicates there, but what, how there's danger between too much ambition and too little ambition. Nice. Like, so I just watched this movie and I was blown away for multiple reasons. Well, thanks. Yes, you're welcome. (laughs) So let me first ask you, what was the inspiration behind this story? Because like you have these 
interweaving storylines of these very different people, and yet they're very unique stories that personally I haven't really seen, you know, being displayed on film at all. So what was like your main inspiration writing this movie? Yeah, that's a really good question. It was so this came from five different writers of which I was one. But the original idea was from one of my colleagues, Pete Muir, who had just the the initial nugget of it was from the Judeo Christian story of the crucifixion and what were all those disciples doing in between the death of Christ and then his resurrection three days later. Mm. And that's something that's not really unpacked. So we took that idea and thought like, okay, there's this death of an innocence. It was caused by different ambitions and things like that. And so we kind of deconstructed that, but kept the multi-narrative and then transposed it into a more modern era and then tried to think about, okay, I mean, if we're going to make a movie, we might as well try to make it somewhat relevant. So what are some hot button issues that maybe it could be tangential to? And something that, you know, especially when we were writing the film, that was a big deal was the green, clean energy turbines. And there's a lot of opinions on either side of that about whether Mm. they're good, whether they're bad, whether we're going to kill all the birds, all of those things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, yeah, really just specifically in West Michigan, there are migrant Mm. farmers who come here, then their Mm. life is something that's not unpacked or looked at in a lot of ways. So those were a few of the ideas that we were starting with that we were moving forward. But obviously, with such diverse perspectives that we were trying to approach, it definitely required a lot of research on our part to try to figure out what these perspectives were. Right. And like many writers before you, you write what you know. (laughs) And since you hail from Michigan, I could see why this can be such a big issue over there because it's dominated by a lot of rural areas. Mm -hmm. Same thing here in Illinois. Yeah. So to get those perspectives, there's five different writers, you being one of them. Did the other writers have experience with these characters? Like, did they like put themselves in this character, in these characters? Or was it like mostly research based and like, you know, trying to figure out how these people would live. I would say as far as particular vocations, it was definitely more research based. But what we ended up doing through the writing process is at least like halfway through the process, once we'd had the grunt work of getting the first couple of drafts done, is we each then focused on one character to make sure that their portions of the script would have a consistent voice throughout. And so at that point, definitely certain characters took on certain aspects of our own personality and things like that. So even though it at those stages, we weren't necessarily speaking from our own vocational experience. We were definitely still speaking from more of our personal uh, and just life experience in that mm. sense of how we've encountered some of these different ideas of, again, ambition and the motivation that we may have for doing what we do. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I have to ask, which character embodies you, Cam? <laughs> Is it the politician? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the the one that's probably closest to to who I resonate with would be Javier, who's mm. struggling actually with not having enough ambition. He's always talking about these great things he's going to do, but has trouble actually, you know, getting the engine started and moving forward on those things. At the same mm-hmm. time, I mean, he's got a great heart. He does love mm-hmm. where he's at, the people he works with and things like that. But yeah, I think that's the side of that fence that I can tend into is a bit of an apathy and things like mm. that, uh, rather than having too much ambition. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people can relate to that. So, <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about your writing involvement mm-hmm. with when Icarus fell. What were your other roles with this film? Yeah, so being a really tight indie budget type of a film, uh, a lot of us wore a lot of different hats. The beginning of this whole process, we looked at each other and said, all right, we're making this feature film. 
we all need to decide what we want to get out of it and then make sure that we each feel like we're getting out of it what we want because this is going to be a really long, grueling, expensive process. So let's make sure it's going to produce the results we're hoping for, at least professionally, personal experience wise and things like that. So for me at that time, I mean, I had not done the role of cinematographer on anything much larger than a short film or a couple small commercials. So for me, it was really a great chance to engage with that. So my other primary role really was cinematographer. All of us did some producing. I mean, co-producer means pretty much anything that needed to happen to get the film done. And so we all chipped in a lot on that. And then uh, I helped do, I did about half the color grade as well. Really? Yeah. Wow. So your fingerprints were all over this film. (laughs) For better or worse, they're all over it. (laughs) It's a fantastic movie, and I was blown away by the cinematography. So I have to ask, what were your inspirations for the whole aesthetic of the film? Because like, I see some hints. I know you're a big A24 fan, so am (laughs) I. Like, Were there certain films that... like? inspired you towards the aesthetic of what this film would look like in the end? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in general, we wanted to bring a more naturalistic approach to it so that it would not feel too cinematic or too over the top because we were trying to tell these more real stories of you know human ambition and things like that. The film that I had watched actually leading right up to it, oddly enough, was the film Mud. Oh, and they okay. did a really good job in that film of, again, matching that naturalistic perspective while still making it all intentional. It's all consistent. It matches things like that, but a lot of it's outdoors as well. And so that ended up just, you know, due to proximity of when I saw that film and when we started shooting this film ended up being a pretty big influence. But I had also, when I was in college, encountered a documentary photographer, photojournalist who had taken a bunch of photos, I believe in Ohio of a migrant community and then lived Mm. with them for a year. And uh, I was able to meet with him, have dinner with him and then hear his lecture. And then bought his book because, you know, figured I might as well at that point. (laughs) But the photos in there were, again, a really big inspiration for seeing like how the light plays in some of these certain situations and outside on farms and things like that. So again, a a big thing was just trying to get a consistent look across the whole film for each Mm -hmm. location and then uh, making sure that it had that naturalistic look. Mm. So what was most challenging, like getting that consistent look? Because the final film looks pretty consistent. Like it seems like it's all shot in like the same area and it looks great. So what was like the most challenging portion of getting that consistent look? Yeah, I think the, I mean, the fact that every time you're setting up the next shot, some lights are moving, you're moving equipment around, things like that. So even within one scene, if you're not paying attention, if you're not sticking with what's happening, you can lose control of that consistency really quick. So Honestly, I mean, using a light meter really helped throughout Mm. the whole thing, pre-deciding, doing some pre-lighting before the Mm. filming took place in order to decide like, all right, when we're inside, but there's sunlight coming through the windows, our key is going to be a stop over. Any sunlight that's creating a backlight is going to be three or four stops over and the fill is always going to be three stops under or something like that. Just gave me a roadmap so that whatever we were doing, wherever things got moved, we could always tweak them back into place in order to get that exact same light meter reading to guarantee that our ratios were at least the same. And ultimately that contributes the most to the look of it. But since we were you know, on a shoestring budget, didn't have a ton of equipment, a lot of times we were relying on natural light to do a lot of that. And obviously the sun fluctuates, there's clouds moving in and out, yep. partial cloud cover, full cloud cover. So any of the days where there was it was partially cloudy out were nightmares to try to keep everything. It was a matter of swapping in and out ND filters on the fly. Uh, I had a really great camera operator and first assistant AC. And so that was invaluable in making sure that that could happen. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I was just trying to stay on top of 
what was happening with the sun during those scenes. Yeah, you can't control the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, yeah. I could see how that would be difficult and like shadows and all this other mm -hmm. stuff that's beyond your control. So it's kind of like a ticking clock no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. So I have to ask, since you've done so many short films, what's next on your filmmaking career? Do you see yourself making another feature down the road? Yeah, right now, I mean, again, being in West Michigan, being part of more of an independent filmmaking community, my own films right now, uh, I, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that you should write the films you have the resources to make because mm -hmm. you might have a great idea for the next sci-fi space opera, but <laughs> if you don't have the ability to make it, it kind of doesn't matter how good that idea is. And so that's been really helpful for me, uh, something that I've learned from the professors in my MFA mm -hmm. program. And so for me, looking in the near future, I would love to get on a process of shooting a short film, eight to 10 pages once a year in the summers. And that works really well with my teaching schedule as a faculty member. And so that's what I'm really looking forward to is trying to get that sort of a pattern down. That being said, I love collaborating with other people. So well, right before COVID in 2019, I was gaffer on a feature that shot up in Traverse City, Michigan, and that was a great experience. So I'm always looking for opportunities to get on other people's projects as well. Nice. I could feel the passion emanating from you, Cam. That's amazing. Well, thanks. <laughs> so before we go into our main discussion, this film, When Icarus Fell, shot, was it four years ago by now? Uh, five now. We shot in July of 2015. So yeah, wow. I mean, coming up on six, I guess. <laughs> Jeez. So, and you just got distribution rights. Yes, last summer. So could you... Explain to the audience why it took so long to get those distribution rights. I think the first reason it took us so long to get distribution rights for this film was because we didn't have money to pay somebody to edit it. So we were editing it ourselves. We started with one of our core crew members as the editor, but then he moved to Cincinnati. Our director moved to England. Oh, wow. Both of them got married from once we finished <laughs> shooting until it was actually done being edited. So it became an international production at that point, just because we were like taking drives overseas. We were communicating oh. in different time zones, trying to get this done. The other main reason was because we had originally written it to be nonlinear, and then we cut it together that way, and it made no sense. So <laughs> then we cut it together linear, and it was really boring. So then we had to figure out like, okay, what's the kind of in-between? And since you've seen the movie, I am sure you recognize the stylistic choice we made to try to cut that balance of a lot of these sort of like flashbacks and flash forward mm -hmm. sequences to try to hit some of the character subtext happening. But it took a long time to get that figured out. We were editing this nights and weekends inside of other professional work schedules. And so it just took a long time to get done. By the time it was finally done, then it was a matter of getting out to festivals. So we were trying to get into the festival circuit a little bit. We ended up, I think, getting into three or four festivals. The two I remember were uh, South Texas International and San Antonio International Film Festival. And so that took a year or a year and a half of that process of applying and then waiting to hear back and then screening. And then after that is when we got in touch with a sales agent and then they connected us with Gravitas Pictures, who is ultimately who ended up providing us with our distribution. So, wow. Yeah. That is crazy. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> but it got done, so it was definitely worth it. Absolutely. And the stylistic choice on the editing, I did notice. And I would say the final product definitely showcased showing, not telling the audience what's going on. Because like you definitely know the motives of all these different characters mm. by intersplicing those scenes that would happen later in the movie 
in the beginning. Like, hmm. I thought it was a great idea. Well, thank you. I'll pass it on to the team. They'll be glad to hear that. That's definitely <laughs> something we were aiming for. Sweet. It, it was coherent, so let me tell you. <laughs> All right. You know, at, at the very least, that, that I think that's a good minimum bar is that it's coherent. I've definitely seen movies that aren't coherent even. So, you know, at least we've got that going for us. I think we all have. All right. So please check out When Icarus Fell, where it is available. Currently, it is a part of Amazon Prime's catalog to stream for members. So please check it out there and wherever it is available. So let's jump into today's discussion with Apocalypse Now. So since this was your recommendation, how did you first hear of Apocalypse Now? So this actually goes pretty far back for me. I guess it was 12th grade English class back in Western New York where I grew up. The English teacher was Mr. Ventura. He was a short Italian man, huge mustache, and he's <laughs> one of my favorite teachers. But he had a really great perspective on teaching us stories. So we'd read stories in class, all of these classics, but he would always find some adaptation that had been made for it and then show it to us in class as well. And so I really appreciated that multimedia perspective and approach to helping us understand the story more thoroughly because we could approach it from multiple perspectives, see how other people had interpreted it and understood it. And so we started with reading The Heart of Darkness in class by Joseph Conrad. And then after that, watched the film in class. And so it really was that far back for me in high school. And it's stuck with me ever since. I mean, it actually was a few years, quite a few years after that, probably until late college before I watched it again. But yeah, it's such such a powerful film. It just really leaves an impression on you. And so that was that was how I first encountered it was through that English class. Yeah, I would say I have a similar story. So I first heard of Apocalypse Now when I was in high school. And like many kids, <laughs> I had a, a war movie phase mm, with me and course. my friends. Same, same. I think I saw Saving Private Ryan for the first time when I was... Uh, early teenager and I was like whoa this is this is a crazy move I didn't even know movies could be like this right and so then you watch Black Hawk Down and then you watch right. Platoon and then yeah <laughs> believe it or not I have not seen Apocalypse Now in its entirety I've only seen certain scenes which you know the helicopter scene which doesn't narrow it down the ride <laughs> of the Valkyrie scene and also the USO mm. scene I've seen those two things but I haven't seen the full movie, and it wasn't until your recommendation for today's episode that I sat down and watched the theatrical version, and let me tell you, I was completely blown away. Completely yeah. blown away. Yeah. It's a really good movie. I mean, it is a Francis Ford Coppola film, so <laughs> you kind of know it's going to be good going in, but like, I was just utterly blown away, not only by the cinematography, but also the story being told on screen. Because it's not conventional. No, not at all. And I, I love what you said there about how you were so aware of some of those iconic scenes already, mm -hmm. even without having seen the movie. And I think that just speaks to how much of a cultural icon it's become because yes. it's certain scenes are so well known. I mean, everybody knows the line, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, even if they haven't seen the movie or don't yeah. even know where it's from. So it's really become pervasive, I think. Yeah, it's definitely one of those modern classics that, I mean, it's like, why haven't you seen this movie before? And I was asking myself that. I'm like, why was I sleeping on this movie this whole time? Yeah, we all have a long list of those films, I think. So, <laughs> Yeah, and they're ever growing with each yeah. day. It's like, yeah, it's yeah, another one. That's another <laughs> one. <laughs> so you read Heart of Darkness, and I didn't even know Apocalypse Now was an adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. I think in a way... 
and we can unpack this at some point, but I think that's mm-hmm. what makes it such an effective adaptation is because mm-hmm. it's so transposed and displaced from that original plot specifically, while still maintaining those themes, those deep themes of it. So yeah, absolutely. And again, that's why like, I love that this English teacher showed us this because it's such a masterful adaptation from an original source material from quite a while ago that it just works so well. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, I had a high school teacher that showed us films too. But we didn't watch any war movies. It was mostly <laughs> sci-fi and fantasy. We saw 2001, The Lord of the Rings. Mm, also good. <laughs> yep, great movies. But I wish we saw Apocalypse Now. I think that would have been a really good movie to watch in a classroom setting. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, I'm trying to remember now if we had to get like permission slip signed since it's rated R. That might have been a thing, I'm trying to think back to it. But it's definitely a good place to watch it because it gives you the opportunity to then unpack it afterwards and discuss some of what happened, which I mean, to be honest, I think that's one of the you know best outcomes a movie can have is when it causes people to talk about it and unpack it. So I mean, exactly like what right. you're doing with this podcast mm. is the ultimate outcome that a movie can expect is that it triggers people to want to talk more. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a hallmark of not only a good movie, but High art, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Dare, dare, I would say. (laughs) So, Cam, before we go any further into Apocalypse Now, listeners of the show knows what time it is. It's time for some elevator pitches. Please stand clear of the closing door. So, for those that don't know, since this is your first time on the show, Cam, what we like to do on Syndicate is called Elevator Pitch. When you're selling a movie to a friend, you really (laughs) only have 60 seconds to do so. So today on Syndicate, we're going to simulate that by putting 60 seconds on the clock. I have a timer up for you. So you're going to summarize the entire plot of Apocalypse Now while avoiding major spoilers. Oh, man. Oh, wow. That makes it harder. (laughs) Yes. Within 60 seconds. Cam, are you ready? I think I am. All right. We're going to start in three, two, one, go. All right, Captain Willard, helicopters, the doors. We start with the end. He's a uh, veteran. He's been in and out of war. He's not sure where he belongs more in the jungle or at home. He's just waiting for his next mission, and he finally gets it. But it's a little unconventional. It is uh, to find, hunt down, and then decide what to do with, judiciously, a rogue member of the U.S. military. And to do so, he's got to go up a river. And that's going to be in a patrol boat through a lot of hot territory, through the Vietnam War. So uh, yeah, it gets psychedelic. It goes off the rails. You start wondering whether (laughs) what you're seeing is real. And uh, I guess you can decide whether it's anti-war or pro-war, but that's up to you. And I guess I'll just leave the last 15 seconds. Oh my God. This this might be one of the fastest, most effective elevator pitches we've done on this show. Oh, wow. Props to you, Cam. Well, thanks. That's incredible. All right, but... Yeah, I mean, you summed it up. Like, this movie, like, I'm not surprised that Francis Ford Coppola made this movie, and I'm not surprised that the final outcome of this movie is the way it is because of Francis Ford Coppola. Mm -hmm. You know Francis Ford Coppola's protege. His name is George Lucas. Yes. And George Lucas was not shy of giving his political views towards Vietnam. Not at all. (laughs) Staunchly against the war, as many Americans were. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that Francis Ford Coppola would make a movie like Apocalypse Now 
and have it be not a, you know, a guns blazing pro-America movie, but a movie that makes you think. And it's like, huh, maybe maybe we're not always, quote, the good guys in mm. every instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's interesting that you bring up George Lucas because he was actually supposed to direct this film originally. What? Yeah, so it was written by John Milius while he and George Lucas were classmates at USC the origin of the story came from one of Milius's professors saying, a bunch of people have tried to adapt Heart of Darkness. No one's been able to do it. And he describes that uh, in an interview as like waving a red flag in front of a young bull. Like, of course, I'm going to try to adapt it now if no one else has ever succeeded. <laughs> but it was actually so he and George Lucas were planning on shooting this. Coppola was going to produce it through his production company, Zoetrope. And then a variety of different things happened. But the, the original vision was actually to shoot it more cinema verite style. Lucas and Milius actually wanted to go to Vietnam while the war was still on and record it documentary style, but still create a fiction film through that process. Wow. It would have been a wildly different movie if that had happened. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, the as I've heard it described anyways, Lucas made American Graffiti, made a bunch of money, and wasn't so keen on going to Vietnam and maybe dying anymore. And so <laughs> he still really liked the core of the story of how can this like small contingent of really dedicated people stand up against a massive superpower mm-hmm. and come out victorious, and then went and made Star Wars. So he still kind of got to tell the story Mm. in some ways. But at that point, yeah, that's where it transferred to Francis Ford Coppola. Wow. Yeah, not in the rice fields of Vietnam, but in the stars of space, he would tell the story. absolutely. That's that's crazy. Yeah. I I had no idea that Lucas was shortlisted to make this movie. Yeah, that would have been a wildly different movie. Yeah, yeah, which could have its merit, but it just would not have been at all what Coppola did with it, which, as you said, I mean, knowing his other filmography, it's no surprise that it turned out like it did. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm glad he made it because, again, love the movie. And I think it's really masterfully executed. Yeah. He even has a cameo. Yes. (laughs) In one of the intro scenes where he's playing a director and he's like, leading the troops like making a movie don't look at the camera just keep walking and actually the camera guy is the dp of the film is also making a cameo (laughs) at that moment so yes great that they shoved themselves in there but i mean if you didn't know what coppola looked like it it just makes so much sense he just looks like a field reporter with a camera operator just being like let's go let's go you gotta make it look like you're fighting people yeah so good (laughs) yeah well yeah he definitely fits the role of director (laughs) Like, he definitely looks like a director. Okay, so the movie, you referenced it earlier. It's an adaptation of Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And I read the book first, and it was my first time reading the book. And I was surprised that it was set during English imperialism times, Mm -hmm. where they're going into Africa. And then as I'm reading it, I'm realizing I could see how... Apocalypse Now can fit into this. <laughs> yes, yes. It was. Uh, we like to think that imperialism, colonialism kind of ended back then. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's an easy hop, skip and a jump to recognize that some of America's reach throughout, you know, the last half century could be seen very similarly to that same kind of an approach. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 100%. Yeah, Francis Ford Coppola masterfully adapted this book. So it couldn't have been adapted before. It was very difficult, you know, Mm -hmm. based on the subject matter. And I think he modernized it in such a beautiful way Mm, because mm -hmm. like not only was it a good idea to set it during this war but it's also it's relatable to so many americans because it's set during vietnam and how polarizing that war was back in the day yeah absolutely that's a great point i think if it if if you try to do a straight adaptation where it's about you know the dutch colonialism on the congo river that would be a lot harder to get a, ma- a mainstream audience to buy into because like you said it doesn't right. connect to the cultural zeitgeist of america specifically mm-hmm. because yeah. we're also some, in some ways a product of that same colonialism and imperialism mm-hmm. here so yeah we don't have that direct connection so i think that that definitely helped modernize it in a way that connects with audiences so you saw this back in high school was it like a formative movie for you beyond filmmaking yeah, I think, I mean, I'd love to say that I totally understood everything back in high school and I <laughs> totally got it and I got the subtext and understood that it was like satire. <laughs> but to be honest, I mean, in high school, I was, even at the end of high school, I was still kind of in that war movie phase. And so honestly, I saw it as a war movie. I didn't really mm. get the critique of it necessarily. I mean, I had been taught and understood that like war is horrible and like, yeah. that's it's not a good thing, but still was in the narrative of but it's it's heroic and what we didn't i've come from a much more conservative background so even some holding the line of no vietnam was totally right and we didn't really lose technically i mean kind of technically but not like really and so it it was you know not till college when i watched it again and had had a little bit more time to open my mind a little wider that i could start Mm -hmm. to see some of what was actually going on in the film and then think back to oh yeah and i mean we literally talked about that when we read the book in English class, and I still didn't make the connections at that point. Uh, But it was formative because it's that anchor point now that I can look back to. And I think being so well executed was definitely formative in me understanding how effective films can be in storytelling. And I think is part of what led me into filmmaking. Yeah, because when you watch it when you're young, like you said, you don't really get the subtext. You don't really see what the director was trying to say Mm -hmm. during the movie. It's only when you're older and you look back during that time that you realize that, huh, I could see why he made it. And also, it's interesting, given the time period of when we were in high school, what was going on at the same time, which was the Iraq War, Mm -hmm. which might have been a good reason why your teacher back in the day showed it during class, because you can make parallels to Iraq and Afghanistan with Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. I think I, I, when I was doing some research on this before tonight, I actually encountered a quote from, I think it was actually John Milius, the screenwriter who said that he went to Iraq during the first Iraq war, desert storm. And 
saw that like this idea of the playing Wagner while these attacks are happening and things was like well known among the troops. And he went out when the oil fields were burning, was like talking to one of the soldiers. And he said, yeah, have you ever like heard that quote? Uh, like, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Like, it's totally the same here. And the soldier saying this didn't know that this is the screenwriter of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. I mean, those parallels definitely exist. And I mean, it sucks that those parallels still exist. That Like, we mm-hmm. keep doing this, even though, you know, it, it's right. we like to think we've moved on. But that makes it continually relevant to audiences. Right. Yeah, I mean, the hypocrisy of our imperialism is quite a subject to unpack. <laughs> so let's attempt to unpack it with arguably the one of the most famous scenes in the film, which is the Ride of the Valkyrie mm-hmm. helicopter scene. And there's so much going on. So I've only seen the movie once, and yet the images that were displayed on the film mm-hmm. resonate and stick with you so much. Yeah, what are some of those images for you? The one that comes to my mind right off the bat, the, the context of the scene is they're going towards a Vietnam village, and it's like an an ungodly amount of Apache helicopters flying through the sky, <laughs> blaring Wagner's right of the Valkyries through their speakers as they're shooting missiles into the village, killing presumably innocent people. There's some mm-hmm. Viet Cong in there too, but... Yeah. It's a lot of collateral damage. Yeah, indiscriminate. Yes. Destroying with extreme prejudice. (laughs) And one of the images that pops up is, so there's ground troops, and in the camp, our camp, there's a priest giving a sermon Mm. as there's explosions in the background. There's no dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's It's all images, which I enjoy as a a film connoisseur. (laughs) So Vietnam is in the East and I would assume that they're probably not a quote Christian nation, Mm kind of like with the people from the heart of darkness or even the pilgrims going to America. Mm -hmm. They're like, we're going to spread Christianity and seeing the priest give a sermon or it might be communion in the midst of a battlefield where people are getting blown apart and killed. It's it's there's a bit of uh irony involved in yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's another one of those parallels to the adaptation that works so well is like it's showing again that things have not changed as much as we might like to think that they that they have changed and that we're still utilizing these power structures in order to reinforce and allow ourselves to keep doing these imperialistic actions and pretending like we're the good guys. And like you said, the movie then asked the question again, visually at that moment, are we the good guys? Cause why are we doing this mass in the middle of this? What appears to be a horrific attack on a village, right? People live to be a hundred. So colonialism was about a couple hundred years ago. That was like two people ago. (laughs) That's a really sobering way to think about that. We like to think like, these grand movements in history was so long ago and it, it kind of mm-hmm. was, but like, if you look at an average human lifespan, it's not that far back. So it's yeah. kind of like we're dealing with the sins of not our fathers, but maybe our great grandparents, like not that long ago. Yeah. That's pretty close. It's pretty mm-hmm. close. And that's uncomfortable to admit 
And I, I don't know. I honestly think that that's what both Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now do really well is portray these situations in a way that causes you to think, that causes you to consider it by just showing the harsh reality of war in the one case or of this pursuit of commercial success through exploiting another country in mm. the heart of darkness. But by portraying that so starkly, I think it just forces you. And some people have called at least the heart of darkness problematic or racist because of how Conrad writes about some of what was going on. But I think mm. that unless you get that real about that's how people perceived the situation and perceived what was going on there, uh, you're not really going to be effective at addressing it right. without getting real. Yeah, the book definitely gets real. And I, <laughs> I was reading it and I'm like, wow. <laughs> I wouldn't say the book is racist because like, it doesn't glorify what the imperialists were doing. It, it's definitely a commentary on it. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like we can't forget the sins of the past because then we'll be doomed to repeat them. Yeah. Just like this film showcases, like, because I think people want to sweep it under the rug, like, oh, like, that's the big stain on Europe's history is that they, by force, try to instill their ideals to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, justifiably so, you ruffled a lot of feathers. And <laughs> the film definitely showcases that because it brings those racist notions that are in Conrad's book onto the screen with the American soldiers perspective towards the Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And there's a few lines of dialogue in the film that, you know, use derogatory language towards, you know, the native Vietnamese yeah. over there. So it's, it's a parallel in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's what both stories do really well is show this idea of, if we want, if what we, if we say what we're doing here is right, what does it actually take in order for people to do that thing? Mm -hmm. And then Kurtz in both stories is the epitome of like, if we took the, what it actually required to do what we said we need to be doing to the nth degree, what would happen? And both stories show that like everyone else is kind of like, Ooh, but maybe not that far, but it's taking it to that logical conclusion. And that if you don't think of these other people in these terms of being less than human or subhuman, how could you act the way that you're acting? How could you attack these villages like this? How could you, you know, commit these atrocities? And it requires that perspective. Another thing I saw in the research was that, uh, are you familiar with Full Metal Jacket, Kubrick? Yeah, yeah, I love Kubrick. Yeah, so the, the way that basic training is portrayed in that film was realistic to what was happening at that time. And that was actually a response to a study done by the army in World War II that revealed that only 15% of American GIs were firing back at the enemy because they were so scared about killing people or hurting people. And wow. so they had to adapt the training in order to convince people that it was okay to shoot the enemy. And like we can see that transformation happen. And then wow. again on screen in Apocalypse Now, where they're just screaming out the window, firing 50 caliber machine guns out of yep. the helicopters mm -hmm. at rice paddies. You know, it's mm -hmm. insane. Yeah, that's really interesting because like with Full Metal Jackets, during the boot camp sequence, mm -hmm. they use an actual drill sergeant. Like he wasn't an actor. He was like, yeah. they just plucked him from some base and I was like, okay, you're in my movie. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I didn't know that they changed the program to make these soldiers kind of like dehumanize the enemy. Yeah. And so you almost have to encourage that behavior. And that's, again, what mm -hmm. Kurtz embodies is 
okay, is this what we're doing? Well, I can do this better than anyone. And then take it to that place where he ends up, you know, which is where the movie ends up. So, right. So let's get into the cast a little bit because this movie is very star studded. Mm, like mm -hmm. even for the time, it was probably star studded. So you kept on mentioning Colonel Kurtz, who's played by Marlon Brando. Yeah. I didn't even know he was in that movie. Yeah, because he's the specter throughout the whole thing that you don't see until the very, very end. And even then, he's like in the shadows the whole time. So you almost wouldn't even know it was him. Right. Sitting down. He's too tired to stand up. He's like, give me my paycheck. <laughs> but no, he did a fantastic job. Like He definitely embodied that man who just gives into the madness. Yes. He sees the horrors of war, and he just gets consumed by it. Just like in the, the novel, Heart of Darkness, this man had a heart of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's one of the things that is the most closely associated between the adaptation is how Kurtz is portrayed and mm -hmm. what he has done. A lot of the other things definitely change a lot in order to make sense in Vietnam, but Kurtz and what he's done, the empire he's kind of created at the end of that river is definitely a pretty one-to-one -one translation almost, even to the point of like what he's written in his journal and things like that and the parallels. Uh, I think in the book, he writes Exterminate All the Brutes, which is actually the name of a new mm -hmm. documentary series that just came out. And then in the movie, it says drop the bomb, I think, in his journal, if I recall yes. correctly. And then yes. he sees that that's what it says. And that's the parallel is like the if you take it all the way and say, we need to win here, then what some generals at the time were saying was we should just drop another nuclear bomb on them then because we'll win. And so if that's actually the answer, then why wouldn't you? Right. But instead, they drop some Agent Orange instead of a <laughs> nuclear bomb. So other than Marlon Brando, we have Robert Duvall, who plays uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore, mm -hmm. who definitely steals a show. Yeah, he was great. Very excellent <laughs> performance. Like he, I knew of Kilgore before I even watched the movie. Because yeah, like, yeah. he's definitely one of those anti-hero type characters that people like glorify and it's kind of like you're missing the point of this guy yes, you're supposed to glorify yes i'm so him. glad you said that because that is exactly exactly the interpretation because if you're a kid you watch and you go oh yeah he's so cool he doesn't care about the explosions <laughs> and like has the cool lines and then when yeah. you grow up you realize oh he's like rick and rick and morty you're not supposed yes. to idolize him yeah yeah i love that you brought that up and I'm not surprised Robert Duvall was in this. I feel like, well, Robert Duvall was in, he was the main character for THX 1138, which is under the Xenotrope film label. Yeah, yeah, which was George Lucas, but again, with mm -hmm. Coppola. Yeah, seeing him, I was like, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then the other two are Martin Sheen as the main character, Willard, who, you know, gets the assignment and it's kind of like the driving force uh, throughout the movie. But there's one cameo that I did not expect. Yes. I bet I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. Such a surprise. It's such a minor role. But yeah, amazing. But yeah. So other than the cast, like this movie definitely stands the test of time. Because even though it's about the Vietnam War, it almost feels timeless. Because mm -hmm. like, it's sad to say, you could like put any war america was involved in into this movie except for world war ii i would say that's my opinion yeah yeah that one there there was definitely a clear aggressor that was being addressed 
mm-hmm. for to you know pacify the language. <laughs> <laughs> but I totally agree with what you're saying. I, I'm curious to see if somebody later transposes this core idea again to talk about something else. We have it talking about the horror of imperialism, the horror mm-hmm. of war. Is yeah. there something else we don't even know about yet that could be addressed through this similar form and structure? Because it really, I mean, it should that idea of like going up the river or down the river, uh, <laughs> as it might be better to say, yeah. uh, this descent into chaos mm-hmm. really just allows structurally for you to deconstruct any idea of the narrative says this is okay, but is it really okay? And like you said, that's been the narrative of a lot of recent conflicts. Right. Let's unpack going down the river. So the structure of the film, like you said, it's kind of dreamlike. The main character, Willard, is placed on this mission to assassinate Colonel Kurtz, who is Marlon Brando's character, because he essentially has gone AWOL, killed some American soldiers, and is a threat to whatever operations are going on in Vietnam. So they send Martin Sheen's character on this mission that's off the books. It's a black mission. (laughs) And... As he goes down the river in Vietnam, he slowly loses his humanity. I thought this was a great metaphor for how a man becomes compromised Mm, mm -hmm. in this environment. Yeah, I think that's really intuitive. And I think that the deconstruction that happens through his voiceover, where we get some of that internal conflict that's happening and how he reacts to all of these things happening as they go down the river uh, really helps land the plane on that. But including the crew as well is really interesting because we also see similar things happening to them. They're kind of like fresh off the boat in mm-hmm. Vietnam. And so as they encounter some of these other troops that have been here longer, like Kilgore's unit and the people at the bridge, they change too. So like we see that, that they when they're in the helicopter attack uh, with Flight of the Valkyries, they're kind of horrified and confused about why everyone's acting this way. But by the time we get to that scene on the river where they stop another boat, they start Mm -hmm. acting the same way. And it's really interesting to see that transformation as well. So I think that's really intuitive to see that as kind of the, how do we become morally compromised as we Mm -hmm. travel through certain experiences? Yeah, it's it's definitely the symbolic descent into the underworld Mm -hmm. for Martin Sheen's character and... Yeah, you definitely see it on screen. It's like slow. It's like this slow descent, slow burn. And it culminates to the end of the film where he comes face to face with, you know, his target, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it was very well executed, this entire movie. Yeah, absolutely. And we, I mean, you could spend another several episodes deconstructing the sound design, uh, which was, I think, Walter Murch. And the editing, how that was put together, even the opening sequence with the fan blades and the helicopter gyros, that comes up in like every film school editing class. And so it really is a <laughs> film that, that set the standard for a lot of different things, I think, visually and as far as filmmaking goes. Right. Yeah. I was completely blown away by the intro, which is there's no dialogue. It's just music and sound effects and juxtaposition with like, this beautiful music being set to images of war. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's just so evocative just watching that. Yeah. And almost hypnotic. And I think that, Mm -hmm. that Martin Sheen's character really did a great job in that sequence of showing the, what he was under the kind of spell he's under is he's just gotten back, but doesn't have a mission yet. And feeling that need to go out and do the thing he's been trained to do. 
and being unable to do it and that kind of hypnotic haze that you fall into and you feel like you have a purpose but can't carry it out. Incredible. So before we go into the last section, I want to talk about one more scene, okay. which is the USO scene. I guess watching it when I was young, I didn't fully understand the context of what was happening, mm-hmm. but watching it as an adult, there's quite a few things going on with that scene. And I think uh, Francis Ford Coppola definitely showcased it very well. Yeah, it is an interesting scene because it all, it, it starts out feeling like the closest they get to civilization again in some Mm. ways as they travel through this river. It feels peaceful at first, like there's a store they can buy fuel at and those things. Mm. There's not combat actually happening. But then as the scene goes on, things start to devolve, you know, Mm. as the the men try to break onto the stage and things like that. And you realize that the same insanity that's possessing Kilgore and his men is present here as well. And it's an interesting addition to the film, again, because it's not the combat zone necessarily. Mm -hmm. And yet we still get to see that same perspective from the troops there. But I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Um, It goes back to, I guess, the imperialism. I mean, that's kind of like the overarching theme of this entire Mm -hmm. movie. So we're going to Vietnam to stop the domino effect of communism. So we're trying to instill our beliefs, our morals into this uh, third world country. So the context of the scene is there's a USO show going on and the entertainment for a crowd of soldiers is some playboy playmates. And they're dancing around the stage with like skimpy military uniforms. And what starts off as like, oh, this is like a a playful, harmless show. And then as you put it, uh, the American soldiers just go crazy. They devolve into like animalistic behavior Mm -hmm. to the point where the the breaking, the, the boiling point was they, uh, a group of like maybe like 20, 25 men storm the stage and they try to assault these women mm-hmm. and they have to be like airlifted out because these men are going absolutely nuts. I think it's a good showcase of how vapid American beliefs can be. So the American soldiers are acting this way and it hard cuts to Vietnamese people like mm-hmm. outside of the facility, outside yes, the gates. Yes. And they're just sitting there eating rice, mm-hmm. not reacting to what they're seeing because they don't really care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting how you, you've juxtaposed this as we said the reason we're here is for American values to stop the atheist communists. And yet, what is it that we're actually bringing here? Is it this? Because if so, what were the Vietnamese not doing that they needed this instead? Mm-hmm. And if this is really what we're coming into plant, then what, what's the point? Did, again, are we the good guys <laughs> when we're doing this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's interesting with the lead performer in that scene has a cowboy outfit on, a skimpy cowboy outfit, which again mm-hmm. is one of those symbols of American paragons Mm. that we've idolized that we've put rose-colored glasses and how we look at the conquest of the west but it was the same thing that's like exactly what was happening in vietnam was this destruction and stomping on of another culture Mm. in the name of progress in the name of we're bringing civilization here we're bringing american values here but at what cost yeah paralleling the white man going into the native americans 
land and pushing them out the trail of tears yeah yeah i mean there's there's a lot going on in each scene Mm -hmm. and i like to think it's intentional on francis ford coppola's part by just having these images play out and he's not like flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Like lecturing the audience like this is what's actually going on <laughs> you know because we're here it's it's bad <laughs> you know he's just showing it yeah and you you come to that cathartic moment where you're like ah are we the bad guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that exactly that we've only scratched the tip of the iceberg with this film absolutely I will throw in if if any of the listeners are interested in more, there's actually a documentary about the making of it called Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. And his wife, Coppola's wife, Eleanor, actually shot a ton of behind the scenes footage while they were filming. And initially it was just supposed to be for like a 15 minute promo reel sort of a thing. But she ended up just shooting more and more and more and more and more. And so now it's this feature length documentary about the making of it. And it is a crazy story. It took like nearly a year and a half to make when it wasn't supposed to take that long. A typhoon wiped out part of the set. There's like communists fighting the Philippine (laughs) government in the South. So like helicopters would just fly away mid take to go fight the communists and things like that. Uh, So there's so much more to learn about this. So if you're interested, definitely check out hearts of darkness, filmmakers apocalypse, and there's a lot more to learn. Wow. I'll definitely be watching that documentary after this. So cam to close the show, we like to do one reason why. So, Cam, what is the one reason you would give somebody to watch Apocalypse Now? One reason that I think everybody should watch Apocalypse Now is just to force themselves to confront some of these American idealisms that we create and put up on a pedestal and just have to confront themselves with, as we've been saying throughout the show, are we always really the good guys? Nicely put. And for me, I would say it's in vain of what you just said. Like, Not only is this film entertaining and thought-provoking but it kind of like holds a mirror up to american society and it's not just a mirror but a black mirror and Mm -hmm. 
it's kind of like we have to confront our shadow. We have to confront the darkness that's within the heart of our society. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we can move forward towards progress. Well said. But that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about Apocalypse Now by Francis Ford Coppola. Please check it out where it is available. And now I would like to take a moment to thank my guest, Cam, for coming onto the show. Thanks. It was great being here. Really uh, enjoyable conversation. And I hope that if you haven't seen it, you take the time to watch Apocalypse Now. Yes, Cam, you are a great guest and you are welcome back anytime. If you would like to see more of Cam's work, please check out his website, camlewisfilm.com, or check out his feature film, When Icarus Fell, where it is available. But if you'd like to keep this conversation going, please add us on your favorite social media platform at Syndicate. That is C-I-N-E-D-I-C-A-T-E Syndicate on Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, Facebook, and Letterboxd. Have questions or film recommendations? Please email us at info at syndicate.com or visit the website syndicate.com. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye. This is the end. Beautiful friend This is the end My only friend The end Of our deliberate plans The end Of